Would open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Good to see all of you. Thank you for being here, especially our appreciative of visitors who have come to encourage us and support the effort this week. But we don't want to overlook the home crowd either. Wonderful that you are here once again, especially after what you heard yesterday. Brother Jeff Scott, who led our opening prayer, he and his wife and their daughter Whitney are here, and they worship with the, the Westwood Church in Tallahoma, the church where I grew up. It's also the church where the, the song leader tonight spent a good portion of his youth. Hopefully this week, while we're here, we'll make it down there and live a little bit of nostalgia and go drive by places that meant a lot to me. But really, it's, it's about the people that mean the most, isn't it? And it's wonderful. Wonderful to see them and wonderful to see all of you. There's no PowerPoint tonight, but I'm going to try to make this lesson as easy to follow as possible. We're talking tonight about eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. The scriptures say that Jesus is going to come again. The scriptures are very plain about that. And when he comes again, he's coming to bring an end to all of God's dealings with humanity so that his people can share in the eternal joy that he has prepared for them. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, beginning, the writer says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment... So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He will appear a second time. But the writer says that he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Meaning when Jesus comes back, he's not coming to deal with the problem of sin. He's already done that. He did that when he first came to earth. Through his death and burial and resurrection and his ascension back to the right hand of God, he dealt with the problem of sin. But when he comes back again, he will bring salvation to his people. The culmination of all of God's dealings will be brought when he returns. But I want you to notice something else that's mentioned in verse 28. And this expression gives us the title of our lesson tonight. He will appear a second time without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. He's coming back to bring home with him those who are eagerly waiting for him. But there's another passage in the New Testament that uses that language. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ eagerly waiting. When we were young children, we eagerly waited 
for Christmas morning. We eagerly awaited our birthday, the excitement, the anticipation for those days and for those moments, and let's be honest, for those toys was there. That's the kind of eagerness that Christians ought to have about the return of Christ. But that raises some questions. And tonight, I want to think about three questions with you. So here's the first one. If the return of Christ is something that we should be eagerly waiting for, when is it going to happen? Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. What does the Bible say in answer to that question? Matthew chapter 24 We're going to look at several verses in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Look with me beginning in 24 and verse 36. But of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Look at verse 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 44. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Look at chapter 25, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 25, it is clear that he says some things there about the end of the world. And the question that is often asked is, when does Jesus change his topic from the destruction of Jerusalem to to the destruction of the world and the final judgment? And I'm not going to go into that. That's a big question. We don't have time for that. But I want you to see this idea that's repeated in these chapters. Be ready because you don't know. Be ready. Because no one knows when Jesus is coming again. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What does Paul say about this? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You'll remember that in chapter 4, he's just brought up the subject of the return of Christ. And Paul anticipates this question. Well, when is this going to be? So in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Now as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. A thief does not announce his intentions. If a thief is planning to break into your home and steal your things, he doesn't send you a text three days before and say, hey, by the way, I'm coming. He comes at a time when you are not expecting him to come. And so Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you don't know when this is going to happen. Now, you know that throughout history, There have been a number of people who have said, we know the exact date that Jesus is coming back. 
well, how do you know that? And they say, well, we've searched our Bibles carefully. And we've gone back and we've read in Daniel and we've read in Ezekiel and we've taken all these numbers and we've done the math. We, we did the calculus and we know the exact time that Jesus is coming back because we've studied our Bibles. And I look at these passages and I say, I'm not so sure you have. And what every single one of those false prophets has in common is that the given date for Jesus' second coming came and went with no appearance of the Lord. So when is Jesus coming back? The simple Bible answer to that is we don't know. But what if we did? What if we did know? You ever thought about that? What would we do if we did know? If we could open our Bible to 3 Thessalonians chapter 4, don't try to find that. But if we had it in Scripture, Jesus plainly saying, I'm coming back on November the 10th, 2023. What would we do with that information? This is a college town. We've got some college students here. I know exactly what you would do. You would procrastinate until the day before. How do I know that? Because I once was a college student, and every semester, at the beginning of the semester, my professor would give me a syllabus, and it would say, hey, final exam is on May the 4th, or whatever the date was. Big, bold letters highlighted in yellow font. This is the date of the final exam. It's on May the 4th. And what did I do? Oh, man, it's May the 3rd. The exam is tomorrow. What would we do if Jesus said, hey, November the 10th, 2023, I'm coming back? I'll tell you what we would do. We would go live lives of ungodliness and wickedness until November the 9th. And then we would try to get right with God right before he came back. We would cram for the final exam. That's what we would do. When is he coming back? We don't know. Here's a second question. If Christ's return is something that we should be eagerly waiting for, what's going to happen when he returns? What is it that we're eagerly waiting for? What's going to happen? I've got five things I want to tell you. There's probably some others we could say, but let's talk about these five things. First of all, let's say this. Everyone will know what is happening when Jesus returns. Are you still in 1 Thessalonians? Go back to chapter four. I wanna look at verse 16. Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Let's emphasize this. The Lord himself is returning. 
He's not sending an angel to make a proxy appearance. He's not just sending a messenger. He himself is coming. And when he comes, he is coming with a loud voice. We talked yesterday about the Israelites at Mount Sinai and what they experienced when the voice of God spoke to them at the mountain. The voice that was so loud, it caused them to fearfully tremble. It caused them to say to Moses, you go up and speak to God because if we hear God speak again, we're going to die. That's how loud and awesome the voice of God was. What will the voice be that Jesus comes with? when he returns. It says in verse 16 that he will be coming with the trumpet of God. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter one. At verse seven, at the end of the verse, it says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It's not just the Lord himself who will be coming, but he will be coming with a host of angels. Matthew chapter 25 says the same thing. When Jesus returns, you will know what's happening. You will see him, you will hear his voice, you will see the angels, you will hear the trumpet, you will know what is happening. This is not something that's going to be done in secret, in a remote part of the world that only a small number of people are able to see. Everyone will know when he is returning. Here's a second thing. All the dead will be raised. Let's go to John chapter five. I should have warned you at the beginning of the sermon, we have lots of Bible to look at tonight. So I hope you have your Bible and you're turning and seeing these passages, so many of them words that Jesus himself spoke. John chapter five and in verse 28 Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the graves will come forth out of the graves, both the righteous and the wicked, Jesus said. Here's a third thing that's going to happen when Jesus returns. The righteous living will be caught up into the air to meet the Lord. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's look at that passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again. You might put a marker here. We're gonna come back to chapter four and chapter five again later in the lesson. First Thessalonians chapter four, let's start reading at verse 15. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord 
will not precede those who have fallen asleep. If we are still living, Paul says, when Jesus returns, we will not precede. Some of you old King James users, your Bible says prevent. The word prevent has a different meaning in our speech today. Precede is the idea. The dead will be raised first, Paul says. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When Jesus returns, and as we read from verse 16 a moment ago, there is the shout and the trumpet and the angels are accompanying him. When he returns, the dead will rise first. Verse 16, John 5. Then the righteous living will join them in the air. When this happens, the fourth thing that's going to take place is judgment. All will be judged by Christ, the righteous to receive their reward and the wicked to receive their punishment. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 Let's start at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And in the next several verses, Jesus will explain one of the things that affects the eternal destination of both the sheep and the goats. You'll remember this is when Jesus says, I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me food. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we do this to you? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But the wicked who failed to do those things, Jesus gives them their eternal destination. So look with me at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. At the end of this parable, he says, of the wicked, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This great separation on the judgment day when all are before the throne of Christ. And the fifth thing that's going to happen, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Everything that we see as we know it will be destroyed. You know where I'm going. Second Peter chapter three.
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And in verse 12, he says that the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. All of the things that God has created will be destroyed. The present heavens and earth will be done away and Peter will speak of a new heavens and a new earth in verse 13 that we as God's people are looking for and we are preparing ourselves to enjoy. When will this happen? We don't know. What will happen when he returns? Did you get all five? Do you need me to repeat those? All right, here's the third question. What does eagerly waiting for the Lord's return look like? What does that involve? If I'm to be eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's start right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Is that not another way of saying eagerly waiting for? Looking for it, hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says that because of what is going to happen when Jesus returns, there are some practical ramifications for us in how we live our lives. We should be people who not only are looking for and hastening the coming day of God, wanting it to come and wanting it to come soon, but he says we should be people who are holy in our conduct, that we should be people who are godly and pious in our attitudes and in our behavior. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If eagerly waiting for the Lord's return looks like holiness in character, Paul will tell us here it also looks like hopefulness in attitude. Chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. I take it that in Thessalonica, there are some brothers 
and sisters in Christ who have died. And the church there is wondering, what's happened? What's their status? Well, what's the situation here? And so that's why Paul gives the teaching that he does about what's going to happen when Christ returns and the dead will rise first and so forth. But, but before he gets into that teaching, he says, I want you to understand this because I don't want you to be sorrowful and mourn the passing of these brothers and sisters. I don't want you to mourn like people of the world who have no hope. It's the people of the world who who are outside of the body of Christ who do not have the hope and the future that Christ gives. But Paul says, you, Christian, have that. So don't you grieve and be sorrowful like the rest of the world. They don't have hope, but you do. Now chapter five. We read verses one and two earlier in the lesson. But Paul says in verse four, but you brethren are not in darkness that this day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You notice that Paul speaks in verse 8 about military armor. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the the armor of God, and it goes through piece by piece. Paul only mentions a couple of pieces here in verse 8. He mentions the breastplate of faith and love, and he mentions a helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Armor is for soldiers, and what do soldiers do? Soldiers fight. So as soldiers of Christ who are waiting for the return of Christ, Paul says, get up, get ready for battle. Get ready to fight. There is work to do. Satan is coming after you. Do not let him win. You push back, you fight back, you give it everything that you've got and you prepare yourself for battle because when you do that, you're preparing yourself for eternity. So what does it look like to eagerly wait for the return of Christ? It looks like holiness. It looks like hope. And it looks like someone who's prepared to do battle until the Lord comes again. Now, if you were listening carefully at the beginning, you heard me say, I've got three questions I wanna ask. And we've already gone through three questions. And you're looking at your watch and you're saying, now, wait a minute. It's only 7.40. There's no way this sermon's done. And you're right. In conclusion, let's ask a fourth question. 
And this is where I really want you to bring this lesson and make it personal to yourself. We've been talking tonight about eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. But the fourth question I want to ask you is, what prevents you from doing that? Because, beloved, I suspect that if you're honest, you would say, as I would, maybe I'm not as eager as I should be. So what is it that's preventing us from eagerly waiting for the Lord's return? Can we spend a little time on that? I have two things I want to suggest to you along that line as we answer that question. What's preventing us from eagerly waiting for the Lord's return? Here's the first thing. The world and all of its distractions. There are so many things that take our eyes away from the goal. There's so many things in the world that can cause us to lose our focus. Like that young prodigal in Luke 15, who went to his father and he said, give me the portion of the inheritance that falls to me. Why did he do that? Was it not because he's looking out at all of these other people having all the fun all of these people who are not where he is. And I want to go do what they're doing. The, the, the distant lights of the far country were beckoning him. And he saw that and he wanted to go and he wanted to participate in that. And so there are temptations, there are sins that the world puts in front of us that are appealing. And I think we need to be honest about that. The book of Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is fun. Sinful activities are fun. If they weren't, listen, if sin was like math, nobody would want to do it. That's why the Bible uses that language, the passing pleasures of sin. And sometimes the temptations of the world, the pleasures that the world offers is appealing. But it isn't just the sinful things that cause us to lose our focus, is it? Let's go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, you'll recognize this parable. You, you know it well. It's the parable of the sower. And, and do you remember in this parable that Jesus spoke about the seed that fell on the soil with thorns? In Luke chapter 8, verse 7, when he's speaking the parable, he says, other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. 
And then when he gives the explanation in verse 14, he says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. What are the things that choke out a person's spiritual fruitfulness? Worries, riches, pleasures. We've talked about the pleasures idea already. Let's talk about the other two. I think it's easy for us to fall into the traps of whatever stage of life that we are in. So if you're a young person like me, and you've got a wife or a husband, you've got children, what are the worries that you think about? When you're pursuing that career so that you can provide for your family and take care of your family, that's a good thing. That's a noble thing. That's a, something that God commands us to do. But does that ever produce any worries in your life? You want to know what I worry about as a father of four? You know how much college is going to cost by the time my young daughters are ready for college? This could be like $9.6 million. Now, maybe I've got nothing to worry about. Maybe by the time they're ready for college, it'll all be free. I don't know. But I'm saving every month. I'm putting money away. And as we grow in life and as we become older and our kids get older and they get involved in things, we start thinking about college and then we start thinking about retirement and do I have enough? And I understand there's a guy in the church who can help you with that, by the way. You're welcome, Brian. Maybe somebody else, I don't know. But we worry about stuff like that. And those worries can choke out our fruitfulness. It's not sinful to worry about your family, to want to take care of your family. There's nothing wrong with that. We should do that. But if that consumes us, then it's a thorn. And it takes away my spiritual life. I, I want to take a few minutes and tell you about my buddy. He's got four legs and a beautiful copper coat. His name's Crockett. Yeah, we live in South Carolina, but Stacy and I are still good Tennesseans at heart. Crockett is the coolest name ever for a dog, you've got to admit especially a Tennessee dog, right? All right, king of the wild frontier. So a long time ago, we're having a barbecue cookout and I'm grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. And Crockett is way off in the distance. We, we've got about 15 acres and, and so he's way off in the distance and he's chewing on a stick as dogs love to do. 
So the burgers are done, the hot dogs are done, it's time for me to transfer them over to the plate, right? So I'm at the grill, I've got the spatula, and I scoop up a burger, and I go to transfer it to the plate and plop right onto the ground. I kind of looked around for a minute, make sure Stacy didn't see it. Because, you know, I mean, what, what would I have done? There you go. But she saw it. So that one's going to the dog. It was a shame because this was a really good hamburger. I mean, it was good. Well, we got plenty, no big deal. So I call him, here, boy, crack it, come here. He looks up at me, kind of cocks his head over, and he goes back to chewing his stick. Rocket, come on, come here. Here, boy. He looks, goes back to the stick. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, you, you're a smart dog, but you know, sometimes you're really dumb. Like right now, I've got this thick, juicy hamburger with, you know, salt and pepper and Worcestershire sauce on it. This is really good. If you would just come and get this, like you would stop chewing on that toothpick and come enjoy what I have for you. And you know, as a preacher, you're always looking for moments that make good sermon illustrations. And this was one of those moments. Because the fact is, beloved, sometimes we're down here on earth chewing on sticks. And our Father in heaven is looking down at us and he is saying, would you pay attention Would you just look, open your eyes and see what I have for you? I want to give all of this to you. Would you put down the stick? But we become easily enamored with superfluous things. We become distracted by the world. Why am I not eagerly waiting for the Lord's return? Here's a second reason. This one might surprise you. God's delaying in Jesus' return. So let's go back to 2 Peter, rather, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3. We've read a good portion uh, of this section already, but I want to point out a few verses we have not considered yet. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 3, Peter writes, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. (laughs) You Christians, you've been going around saying for years that Jesus is coming back. Well, where is he? I think it would be helpful for you to know that the book of 2 Peter was probably written some 35 years after Jesus' resurrection. Late 60s A.D. 30 years, Christians, you've been saying Jesus is coming back. Well, where is he? (laughs) Maybe he forgot. Maybe his alarm clock's not working. Where is he? You said he was coming. 
What do they say today? <laughs> 2,000 years, Christians. <laughs> you guys have been saying he's coming back. Well, where is he? What's taking him so long? Peter answers this. And he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow. He hasn't forgotten. He, he, he didn't turn off the alarm clock. He's coming. But, Peter says, he's showing his patience. But isn't it interesting that Peter says it this way? The Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient toward you. Isn't that interesting? You would think Peter would say that he is patient toward all, not wishing that any should perish. And that's certainly true. God is delaying the second coming of Christ for as long as he possibly can so that as many people as possible are given the opportunity to obey the gospel. Only God in his infinite wisdom knows when the time is right. But he is exercising his patience so that all people have the opportunity to hear the gospel, to repent of their sins, to be baptized into Jesus Christ and begin a new life. God wants all of them to be saved, but Peter says that he is being patient toward you. I want you to ponder that. Because if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, those words are directly for you. The Lord has shown his patience to you so that you may be given the opportunity to become his child. Don't squander that opportunity. Maybe God is putting people into your life. We talked about Cornelius and Peter yesterday. Maybe God is, is orchestrating events in your life so that you will wake up to the spiritual realities that are before you that you have been ignoring thus far in your life, and you will turn to him. What's keeping you from eagerly waiting for the Lord's return? Don't be like these mockers. Well, that's not gonna happen. You guys have been preaching this same old thing for all these years. Nothing's ever changed. Everything's going about as it's always done. That's God's patience. And if you're not his child, it is patience that he is showing to you because he wants you to respond. So will you do that? If you're not his child, will you receive that patience that God has shown to you? And will you answer 
by giving your life to him? If we can help you with that tonight, we would love nothing more than to be given that opportunity. Would you let us do that tonight? Can we help you? If we can, would you please come now as we stand and sing together?